So stoked to be with you guys tonight. We're going to finish out our series on the book of Jude, which uh, is an awesome book, a timely book, I think a difficult book for a lot of us, but I think God's been speaking to us. I know he's been speaking to me as I've been just with him and engaged in the, the text over these last few weeks. I want to start off with a, just a brief story in case there's anyone here going through the last couple of weeks that you're still maybe struggling with this idea that our beliefs, don't, our beliefs really don't matter. Our beliefs, our, our, our beliefs don't motivate our actions. It, it's, what does it really matter what we believe? Doesn't it just matter what we do? Well, I think this was after the first week of the Jude series. Uh, I went home after church, and man, I was tired. I was feeling a little sick. I was just laying on the couch. My middle daughter, Aria, who's four years old, she was struggling a little bit to go to bed. So she came down a couple times. You know, we went through the whole, the whole dance that you do with your kids. Um, you parents know what I'm talking about. You non-parents, uh, good luck in the future. God, God bless you. Um, anyways, you know, it's, it's like the, the final warning I gave to Aria. You need to go upstairs right now. But before you come up, you know, I don't want to end the night on this like harsh note. Why don't you come give me a, just come give me a big smackaroo. These are my exact words that I said to Aria. So I'm laying on the couch and she comes over with a smile on her face and she grabs my head, cocks it back, and just punches me in the face <laughs> in a way that a four-year-old should not be able to do. It was, I mean, it literally took me a couple days to recover. And the moral of the story is she did not know what a smackaroo was. She thought I was asking her to punch me in the face. Your beliefs do matter, at least um, when you're talking to a four-year-old. They most certainly do. Um, okay. So, uh, we've gotten that out of the way, right? Let's dive right in. Let's dive right into Jude 1. I'm going to read the section we're going to talk about tonight, which is the rest of the book, verses 17 through the ends. And if you've got a Bible, uh, or if you're in a church right now, um, you could find a Bible in one of the pews next to you. Uh, seats next to you, not pews. Man, old habits die hard. <clears throat> um, why don't you grab it so you can read along and just kind of follow even when the text is not up on the screen tonight. Jude is the second to last book in the Bible. It's right before Revelation, so just flip towards the end, and tonight we'll be going through verses 17 through 25. So I'm gonna read the passage for tonight and then pray, and then we'll talk about the passage. And, and I, I hope and I pray that this hits us. This really hits us hard. And at the end of the day, that the Spirit of God uses his words to teach us and to transform us. Verse 17, but dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last time, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Before all ages, now, and forevermore, amen. God, I pray that you would speak to us tonight, Lord, that you would help us to engage with you, God, uh, with our minds and with our hearts, Lord, God, I know that every single person here is coming into this place, uh, Lord, and, and has a different perspective. We have different things going on in our lives, Lord. We have different challenges, God, but, but we know that you, God, speak to us in the most fundamental ways through your word, uh, speaking to the core of who we are, God, and I pray that would be our experience tonight, Lord, that these words would not go in one ear and out the other, Lord, without making a mark in our minds, and in our hearts, God. Speak to us tonight. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with the Spirit as I speak, God. Help me to represent you well, Lord. Um, 
and help us to grab on to the truths that you have for us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, just a really brief recap. And I would encourage you, if you're coming in fresh tonight, and this is your, your, uh, your, your first week here, I think it would do you some good to go back and listen to the last two teachings. This is a three-week series in the book of Jude. And again, like I mentioned earlier, it's, it's a, a timely word, I think, for us and our culture in this moment right now. So I would encourage you to do that, awakencolumbus.com. You can find the previous messages pretty easily. The last couple weeks, we've seen through the first 17 verses that this book is written by Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, who grew up with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as his older brother, and he wanted to write about positive, encouraging things. He, wa- he, he literally says, I wanted to write to you about the salvation we, we share, just talking about the good things that God has done in our lives and the promises he has in store for us in the future, but there was something urgent that caused him to write and urge in that the strongest possible terms, the believers in this church, and we don't know where the church was exactly, to, to do one, one thing. What is, this, what is this thing that is the dominant action point from the book of Jude? Anybody got me? What is that? What is he telling them to do? Why is he writing this? To urge them to contend for the faith. This is the thrust of the letter. He's urging believers in this church to contend for the faith because it was under attack in their very own community by false teachers that uh, were teaching this kind of amoral sexuality and uh, teaching things that that were a departure from the the core, simple teaching of Jesus through the apostles. Uh, This was really, really messing things up. And man, we kind of breezed through this last week, but in the previous section, Jude is laying down the hammer I mean, it is absolutely intense the way he describes these false teachers. He is not pulling any punches whatsoever. And it reminds me of the way that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees at the end of the book of Matthew. Uh, Very, very similar language, similar imagery that Jude is using. He's he's getting his cues um, quite obviously from from Jesus and talking uh, not only about the same things, but even in the same style, which I think is really interesting. Okay, so he's describing these false teachers. That's kind of where we've left off. And then in verse 17, it starts with this very simple word, very simple word, but, but. So the false teachers, um, they will experience, we've, we've read previously, these false teachers in the church, they will experience judgment upon Christ's return. But you, dear friends, the the book takes a turn on verse 17. Now he's not talking about the false teachers, but he's talking directly to believers in the church. You, dear friends, but you, dear friends, there should be a radical difference. This was Jude's expectation. What he's about to do is lay down some positive commands, action steps for the believers to take in light of the infiltration of false teaching within the church. The very first one of these imperatives, these action steps, is to remember, verse 17, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. And then Jude refers back to this earlier teaching within the church. Uh, he, He talks a little bit more specifically about what they're to remember. In the last times... In the last times, there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. So this is the big action step that Jude is calling the church, the the, the action he's calling them to, to remember the teaching of the apostles and specifically um, that in the last times, There will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. Okay, first off, I think we ought to know that the strength of this word remember, it's not mere recollection, but it's recollection in order to bring about some kind of action or response. Like we see this often throughout the Old Testament. God calls his people to remember his faithfulness in order that they may return to faithfulness as they wandered away from that so, so often. 
But where exactly does this teaching come from? That in the last days there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. Jude, I believe, is ultimately pointing back to the, what's called the Olivet Discourse. And it's found in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, also Luke 21 or Mark 13. It's, it, it's the last of five major teachings or discourses by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And it is like the climax of what is happening in the story of the Gospel of Matthew, right, right up until Jesus' suffering and his suffering on the cross and his resurrection. It's a huge deal in Matthew. And from this teaching, it, it's really the foundation, this teaching, Matthew 24, you gotta know what's in Matthew 24. You, you gotta know it. This is really key foundational stuff. It's, it's like the epicenter of foretelling in the New Testament. The other apostles, they refer back often, very often. Many other letters in the New Testament refer specifically to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24. And so it's hard to understand what exactly is Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 or what's Peter talking about without understanding Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24. And in this teaching, Jesus predicts the destruction of the Jewish temple, which did in fact occur uh, within a generation, like he, he said in 70 AD. He teaches the disciples about his return and his coming kingdom, that he will one day come back, recreate a new heaven and earth where the faithful will walk with God restored. And the, the, and the unbelieving will experience the judgment and wrath of God. Jesus also warned multiple times in this sermon that there would be an increase of false teaching and false prophets as his return nears. And these specific warnings are repeated by New Testament authors as they point back to Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse. And that is what Jude is doing right here. He's repeating Jesus' teaching and the teaching that the other apostles also repeated that as his return nears, there will be an increase. We should expect an increase of false ideas, of false teaching, not in the world necessarily, but in the church itself or at least the self-described church. And I want to pause for a moment and, and just point out the obvious. This, I, I, I believe this rings true today in a way that may be unprecedented in, in modern history, at least in the West. And I'm not saying that our culture and our time, that, that this scripture and Jesus' greater warnings of the last times are, are pointing, pointing to our situation in any kind of exclusive way. I mean, this rang true for Jude's first readers, obviously. Uh, and that was nearly 2,000 years ago. But I think that it would be naive of us to disregard the trajectory of our own civilization and, and of even the church, the church in the West, towards this, this amoral pluralism and a disdain for doctrines of judgment. I think it would be naive for us to disregard that as an example of exactly the thing that Jude has in mind in recalling Christ's words. We, we have been warned. We have been warned by God in numerous instances in the New Testament to remember Jesus' teaching and the apostles' warnings about false teachers. And we're to remember, not just so that we can have this knowledge in our minds, but so that we can be prepared. Awareness, recognition of what's to come, man, it's, it's half the battle. Our expectations are so important. Um, I'm reminded of a young Kevin McAllister. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yes. Um, you guys have seen Home Alone, right? Am I, am I uh, you, college students, have you, seen, have you seen Home Alone? Rivera girls, have you seen Home Alone? Okay, that's good, that's good. Somehow in this fictional neighborhood where everybody goes out of town for Christmas, <laughs> except for the creepy old guy, um, Man, Marv and, what's the other guy's name? Harry? Okay, 
That's what I was thinking, but it just sounded too accurate, Marvin Harry. Um, the Wet Bandits. Man, they're just having their way in everyone's house, just doing exactly what they wanted to do, except for the one person who knew they were coming. And, oh, man, it's so satisfying, isn't it? We used to, we used to take the uh, VHS tape, obviously. Um, I think at one time we had one that we recorded on TV. You know, you have to fast forward through the commercials. Uh, and we just fast forward to them. We call them the funny parts at the end of the movie, uh, where Kevin's preparation really, really paid off. Uh, and, and Harry and Marv got what was coming to them. Um, anyways, that doesn't really have anything to do with anything at all. But... <laughs> But maybe to point to uh, just a humorous example of how preparation and expectation does matter in our lives. Um, And we just should not be so naive as to think this could never affect us. This could never affect our time. Yes, I can look back historically. I can see how the church went astray leading up to the Protestant Reformation. I can see how, you know, when people were killing each other over minor doctrines in the uh, 16th and 17th centuries. Yeah, 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 that's not good. But we've got it figured out. I mean, we've got the internet, man. Um, we're not, we don't have to struggle with uh, false teaching anymore. I don't know. In our lives, in our church, in the church today, in this day and age, we have got to expect that as Jesus' return draws near, there will be an increase of false teaching and false ideas in the self-described church. Okay, verse 20 and 21, they draw it draw out here further what it means to remember and be prepared. Here we see that as we remember the apostles, that the apostles foretold false teachers in the church, our first concern should be that we ourselves, that we personally, as individuals, are firm in the truth. And there's four things laid out, laid out here in the subsequent verses. Verse 20, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit and keep yourself in God's love. And it's kind of like three imperatives as you're doing this broad fourth thing. And that's how Jude works. You know, over and over, he just repeats things in groupings of three. And this is a little different, but the broad thing that should characterize our lives is waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring us to eternal life. That is this expectation. Jesus is coming back. He's going to make everything right. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to give us new bodies as believers. He's going to bring salvation. He's going to bring judgment. And um, we're going to see him face to face. This is what we're waiting for as believers. This is, the, this is the foundation of our actions, this waiting for Jesus to come and do his job and make everything right. But number one, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. The imagery definitely is that of the, the temple here and the people of God being the temple. There's no longer need for an earthly temple. Thus, the earthly temple was destroyed in 70 AD, but... God's special dwelling place on the earth today is in his people, and this imagery is used throughout the New Testament, that he's building up as a temple uh, in which to, d- to dwell in a special way, in a unique way. We, we get to be that, and it's not just our church. It's uh, well, certainly not a building, but not even just the people in our church. This is as a part of the people of God throughout the world. We are part of this, uh, we are part of this building. But notice the... Notice the precise language. You yourselves, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith, this is something that we do together. We stand firm on the most holy faith as the foundation of what we believe and what we do. That is the core teachings of Jesus, the the teaching of the apostles, the teaching of the, the, the teachings that were preserved for us in the canon. In the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, we stand on those as our solid foundation, but we can't do that alone because we so often get things wrong. We so often need brought back. God did not save us to know him alone. He saved us to know him as part of a family, to be part of his church, to be part of this awesome, holy building, uh, something that he is doing. So together, 
together with others in the body of Christ. We are to stand on the teachings of the apostles found in the scriptures as our foundation. The foundation for our worldview, what we believe, the foundation for what we do, our actions. Remember that Jude from previous weeks, he's not just concerned, he's not just concerned about what the false teachers believe. He's not just concerned about their preaching. They are doing a lot of gnarly stuff. Like it is followed by their actions and their sinful lifestyles. So the things that we believe and the things that we do have got to be on this foundation of the word of God together, together, together. We can't do it alone. Number two, praying in the Holy Spirit. Uh, this might bring to mind some kind of charismatic experience. Um, that's, not, that's not necessarily what Jude has in mind by praying in the Holy Spirit. This is prayer that is to be authentic, that's not to be self-driven. This is, this is the way we ought to pray in the Holy Spirit moved by the Holy Spirit, motivated by the Holy Spirit, urged along by the Holy Spirit, given uh, the, the emotions and the words, being really led by the Spirit of God who lives inside of us as believers. And I think many of you, many of you know what this is like. Many of you know the difference between just going through the motions and really praying in the Spirit, being moved along by the Holy Spirit. And I, I recognize that some in here don't, and it's a little bit hard precisely to nail down what that prayer that's not self-reliant but that's God-reliant looks like. But what I would encourage you uh, to get into just a little piece of application here is just start with where you're at. Start with where you're at. God, I am coming to you right now, and... I'm not feeling it. Like I'm relying, even for the words I'm saying right now, I'm relying upon myself. I don't want to be here right now. I want to be playing golf or whatever. Um, help me, humble me. Help me to be authentic. Help me to be real. Help me to be moved by the Holy Spirit and directed by the Holy Spirit in the things that I pray. Bring to mind your truths and your scriptures as I pray. You got to just start with where you're at. If you're not feeling it, communicate that to God. If you are feeling it, communicate that to God, but don't get prideful that you're just the best person in the world at, at praying. Um, but we gotta start where we're at and be authentic. Keep yourselves in God's love. Now, this is kind of the other side of the coin. We see two places in the book of Jude where it talks about being kept by God in Christ Jesus. And at the very end, uh, he is, is the one who is able to keep us. We see in the, the last doxology in the book of Jude. So you see a couple instances where God is doing the keeping, and, and then this command where we are to keep ourselves in God's love. And I, I think it's likely that Jude has in mind John 14 where Jesus talks about, if you love me, you will obey my commands. If you want to live a life of love for God, it's not about the emotions. It's not about the feelings. It's not about how high you raise your hands in worship. Okay, you can do those things and you can have those emotions and lack love for God. It is about living a life in obedience to the things that he cares about, to the things that he's given us in his word, following him, submitting your life to him. And we could certainly talk a lot more about, about that, but I'll move on here. Um, and again, we already commented, do these things as you wait for Jesus to return. Okay, in verse 22 and 23, the focus points outward. First, we're to deal with ourselves. We're to deal with ourselves and be confident that we're not, we're not ourselves walking a road of false teaching or practice. But then how do, we, how do we interact? You know, we should expect this. We should expect false teaching in the Christian church. Uh, how do we interact with individuals involved at varying degrees with false teaching in our, in our community? There are three commands here in verses 22 and 23. And these commands, they seem to direct us to interact with three different groups in three different ways. So those three things. Be merciful to those who doubt. Again, this is verse 22 and 23. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Such vivid imagery here. 
Okay, the first group of people are those who doubt. Those who have been hurt, confused, those who've been impacted by false teaching. We're to show mercy. Now, a, a literal definition of the word used here, it's, it's feeling compassion and showing kindness towards someone in need. Feeling compassion and showing kindness towards someone in need. Mercy is not mercy unless you can recognize that someone is in need. Those who are doubting, who've been tossed back and forth by divisive teaching within the Christian church, we have to recognize the, the need of that person. To recognize, to take it a step further, to recognize that a person in that situation is truly in need, I have to acknowledge that believing true things is necessary in order to live a full life. If I'm to really view the person who's been impacted by false teaching as someone who is in need, I've got to recognize that believing true things is necessary in order to live a full life. And that believing false things will bring damage to our lives, that it's displeasing to God, and that it is legitimately damaging to our lives. For example, I, I, I might encounter someone who has embraced the ideas inherent to what's called open theism. This is just, I mean, and there's a, a wide swath of, of exactly what one could believe if they're an open theist. But an open theist may believe something like God, just simply God doesn't know the future. He doesn't know what's going to happen. It's not within his control. He's not, he's not existing uh, outside of, of time. And this is kind of a wave that hits certain like, populations within the church a, a, a ways back. I'm, I'm choosing something that I don't know if anyone here struggles with open theism or would claim to be an open theist. But for someone to embrace this doctrine that is a departure of Orthodox Christian faith on, on exactly who God is, it's a perversion of one of his attributes, that he is truly all-knowing as the greatest conceivable being, that he knows all things that have happened, all things that will happen, and all things that could happen as, again, the greatest conceivable being. Open theists twist one of those attributes just a bit. Um, now, it might not seem like that big of a deal. Okay, so you believe something a little different about God. Well, the ramifications for that kind of belief are significant. Because if, I don't, if I'm no longer confident that God knows the future, I'm certainly no longer confident in uh, some of the warnings that are found in Jude. How can a God who doesn't know the future empower uh, people and inspire people to write scriptures that talk about the future? How can a God who doesn't know the future know for sure that I'm going to be rescued when he comes back? How can a God who doesn't know the future know that ultimately he's going to be victorious in the end? And so as a result of this false belief, I can go down a road of just doubt, self-doubt, doubt in God, lack of confidence in, in him, in the sovereignty of God, and lack of confidence in the future of my own life. And so sometimes these doctrines that seem so, they seem so unimportant, they can have tremendous ramifications in our lives as we relate to God and as we go about even just our day-to-day -day lives. They can have tremendous ramifications. It does matter what we believe. It really does matter what we believe. Our beliefs greatly impact our feelings and they most certainly impact our actions. Our true beliefs, like what we believe at our core, they demonstrate themselves over and over again throughout the course of our lives. We can try and suppress them, but they will come out in some way, shape, or form. And if Satan can distort us 
at the level of belief. If he can distort our beliefs, he will cut us off from many, many of the blessings of Jesus in this life. That matters. That is a tremendous need. And I ought to see someone who's given to false teaching as someone who is in need. So mercy is the dominant response here. It's not denial. It's not minimization. It's not condemnation. We must, with compassion and kindness, encourage those who are doubting. Encourage them, pointing them to Jesus Christ and the truth found in the scriptures. I mean, engaging, really engaging, honestly, but pointing them to Christ and not just having a, a cavalier attitude towards, uh, towards doubting what are essential things in our walk with Christ. Okay, the second group of people here is described simply as others. Save others by snatching them from the fire. So this is a different group than those who doubt. And the fact that we are to snatch them from the fire, it implies that they're in danger of departing from the faith. They've not been merely confused, but they've cast, they've cast their lot with false teachers. And I think quite, quite a few questions arise from this one little phrase. And we're, we're not going to get into all of them in one teaching here with, with not much time left. But we can't sum. And so what is the fire, first off, to which Jude refers? A couple summers ago, I took some time and just wanted to go through from Genesis to Revelation, every biblical passage uh, that, that is relevant when it comes to future judgment. And it was a tremendous exercise for myself personally and very weighty. It was uh, encouraging and, and sad, both of those things. There are several recurring themes in these passages. Fire is dominant. It's a dominant metaphor that is used to describe God's future judgment. In this fire, it's not in the sense, the fire to which Jude refers, it's not in the sense of uh, refining or purifying. It is in the sense of destruction, damage and destruction. Fire and darkness together, they're the most prominent metaphors used to describe the, the horrors of judgment and hell. You see both of these in the book of Jude. And in Jude, he takes his cues straight from his half-older brother, Jesus Christ, who talked often, very, very often, about God's future judgment. Jesus' return is on Jude's mind. It's on his mind as he writes this letter. And remember that at... At Jesus' return, he's going to recreate all of reality, consummate his kingdom where believers will see him and walk with him restored. But listen here to what John writes to the churches at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 21. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Those, those who depart from the central teachings of Jesus and his apostles, this, the, the central teaching, teachings of Jesus and his apostles, we have that, right? We have that in the New Testament. They are in danger of, of hell and exclusion from the kingdom of God and his blessings forever. Now, the admonition for us, and I'm assuming here I'm talking to a room full of mostly genuine believers who know Jesus, and, and you're not just part of this club because it's a ritual in which you participate, or it's what you've grown up with. Now, I know everyone here is, is maybe not in that place, but assuming that I'm talking to a group of, of believers here, 
And when we go back to the last slide, like the last, last slide with like the points, is to save others by snatching them from the fire. Similar, similarly to the, the last point, we cannot show mercy if we don't recognize the importance, like how necessary it is to believe true things. If we can't recognize someone's in need, if, if they're doubting, we cannot walk out this commands if we don't believe in judgment and hell. We just can't do it. It's simply not possible. The wrath of a holy and just God, it is a terrifying thing. Christ bore that wrath. Jesus bore it himself. All the wrath of God. But all who do not come up under his sacrifice will be subject to judgment and found wanting. Judgment, exclusion from his kingdom, and eternal regret. This, this is the reality and the fate of the unbeliever. That person who is rejecting the atoning sacrifice of Jesus' blood, whether or not that person has once appeared to be in the church, whether or not they made a profession, the New Testament, it's full of, of passages filled, uh, full of passages giving us the expectation that there will be false believers in the church. Like, that's a normative thing. Yet it's here I fear that uh, many, many Christians have capitulated to the world, either as a, a matter of intention to depart from scriptural teaching, or I think what's more prevalent is to diminish this teaching on God's judgment, to, to, to diminish it, to ignore it, to believe it as a matter of doctrine, but not to assign any practical importance to it. We, we have become so, so afraid to talk about judgment in hell. And guys, it is, it is so difficult. I mean, have you, have you been up at night? Have you been up at night? Have you wept for those who don't know Christ? Have, have you thought of what it's going to be like when they see Jesus Christ return and are filled with regret? Have you had that experience? If the majority of us cannot raise our hands and say yes, there's something dysfunctional about our community. There's something dysfunctional about the church. We're so afraid, so afraid to talk about anything but the love of God. And we need to talk about the love of God and we need to emphasize the love of God. But it is the love of God that took upon Jesus, took upon the wrath of God and bore our punishment to save us from hell. This is God's desire for us. Not to condemn us, but to save us. Now, I want to, uh, I'm kind of going off my notes here, and I, I may skip a few things in, in order to give time for this. I'm curious in this room, again, assuming that most of us in here have a saving faith, we've come to Jesus, we've confessed him as Lord, we can point back to some like moment or season where by the grace of God, we said yes to Jesus, confessed him as Lord, became a Christian genuinely, not just because our, our parents told us to. Now think back on that moment in your life. And for you, when you came to Christ, and I, I'm gonna ask for a show of hands here, I'm, I'm, I really am curious. Was fear of God's judgment and hell, was that a part of the decision for you? Was that, was that part I'm not saying all, but was that part of what motivated you to respond to Jesus, say yes, and become a Christian? If that's, if that's true for you, raise your hands. I think, yeah, not every hands. I'm raising my hands. That was true for me, and that certainly doesn't need to be true. It certainly doesn't need to be true, but we have become so allergic, I think, to talking about judgment and hell, almost, via, and I maybe mentioned this a couple weeks ago, almost viewing it as a moral error, like it's wrong when you're communicating the gospel with someone to talk about judgment. Like, it's a literal sin to, to preach hellfire and brimstone. And I'm not advocating that style. I'm not advocating, like, the big signs with weird font and just strange colors that are just not up to date. I'm not advocating that at all, by any means. But look around at how many people here 
were motivated by healthy, healthy fear of Jesus' return. Guys, this is, this is real. It's so easy. We get caught up in the, the everyday stuff, even of following Christ. It's so easy to forget about what's coming in the future. There is a future that is both glorious and terrifying. And Jesus makes no bones about it. He will separate like the sheep and the goats, those who know him and those who do not. Now, I think the admonition here is be first, be in that number. Make sure that, that, that you are confident you have a relationship with Christ. And number two, really care about that. For those who God has placed you in their lives, for many in your workplace or in your classroom or in your family, if someone is going to communicate the gospel to them, if someone is going to be able to follow this admonition to snatch them from the fire, to take, to take action in their lives, for many of you, you are the person. I believe you are the person. You are the follower of Jesus. You are the believer who's engaged in their faith that God has put in their lives. But you, you won't do it. You won't do it if you don't really care about these things. It's just not gonna happen if you don't really care about these things. And it's fine and good and even necessary to meditate on the truths of scripture that are both good and happy and pleasing and the ones that are so hard that we just, we can't bear the burden ourselves. We, we can't do it. But we can recognize and remember and know that there is a coming judgment that God is just and, and continually let him give you tears over that. Let him bring you to weeping. Let him motivate you through sorrow, genuine sorrow, and then give that burden back to him over and over again. You can trust him with it. He can handle it. Ultimately, we can't handle it. We can't handle the burden, but we can continually give it back to the Lord. Um, moving on here. The, the, the third thing to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now, I just, I've, I'm gonna skip over a few things here in my message, but I wanna just mention the weight of this passage. This is, yeah, I, I can't get in trouble for saying this because this is the Bible, <laughs> okay? Um, you know, you can't say everything that was written in Song of Solomon um, in a normal setting, but if you read in Song you're good. Um, this is a, maybe a little bit similar. This is, li- this is talking about poop-stained clothing, poop-stained underwear. That is lit- the, the stain referred to here is the stain of crap. And the garments, the clothing here, it, the, the, the word, it, the Greek word is talking about the garment worn closest to your body, like literally your underwear. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you have handled poop-stained underwear. I have many, many times. I mean, innumerable times. Um, obviously, this is an issue with, kid, with little kids. This is a regular occurrence. Uh, and also, most definitely, with grown men. Uh, especially grown men of the 90s, before whitey tidies kind of went out of fashion as the predominant thing that they wore. Um, can, you remember, can you remember back to your growing up years you know, for whatever reason, you're tasked to do the laundry and you look a little too closely. Um, you know, you're doing your parents' laundry. You see your dad's thing. This is, this is a problem with, like, men, children, and I think pregnant women also. Those are kind of the three categories. But I promise you, if you're in that place and you guys know what I'm talking about, I think you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you're wanting a hazmat suit, when you're carrying that laundry, you know, you got the laundry basket, you're like walking it like this uh, down to the laundry room or whatever because you do not want to, you want to stay as far as you possibly can. This, this is the vibe, this is the feeling that we ought to get talking about how to interact with not just those who have been influenced by false teaching but with false teachers themselves. So this is the third group and the, the force of the language should lead us to the conclusion that Jude is talking about the actual false teachers. We gotta show mercy. Show mercy to those who are intentionally leading the people of God away. That is compassion, kindness, unmerited, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. 
So here, here's the deal. The caution here is to not get so wrapped up when we're dealing with those who are propagating false doctrine uh, that, that we, get, we get pulled into it ourselves. That, that, that's, the, that's the admonition. Just be careful. Be careful as we deal with those who are teaching things that are contrary to the scriptures. And this might sound irrelevant right now, like, man, I'm not thinking about anything like this. There will come a time, there will come a time when someone in your life, in your church, or in the church at large, in the body of Christ, is teaching something that is contrary to the scriptures. And um, we've got to, if we know them, we've got to engage with them in love and mercy but being careful that we don't get swept away in the false teaching ourselves. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. Four things, four things that we can do. This is all of the book of Jude. To practice this and not just learn it, but to practice it faithfully, we must, number one, contend for the faith. That means fight for what's true. The teachings of Jesus Christ through his apostles on three fronts. Our own hearts, our own minds, our own lives. Recognize that you can go astray. We can go astray. It's not hard for us. This is why we cannot be lone wolf Christians who just figure out our own paradigm. We make all our decisions on what we believe about all these, all these non-essential things. You know, we pick and choose like a buffet line. No, we need to be with others in a church. Contend for the faith on three fronts, our own hearts, our own lives. Those in our circle who are doubting, who are struggling, uh, in the church and those who have departed from the faith. We've got to be able to contend for the faith on those three fronts. Our own hearts and minds, those in the church, and those who are outside of the, the teaching of the Bible. They, they have rejected it. Um, I think we see those things all throughout Jude, and uh, the healthy life of a believer is doing all three of those things, is conscious about all three of those things. Number two, to faithfully practice Jude, we've got to identify strongly with a local church. So many of these commands are implicitly one another commands. Like, it's literally impossible to do them if you're not rooted in to a local church. You can't do it with online Christianity. You can't do it hopping around from service to service. Whoever the, the like, coolest pastor is this week or the greatest worship team we, we, can't, we literally cannot practice the commands found in the book of Jude if we have that kind of lifestyle as Christians. Identify strongly with the local church where your ideas can be fleshed out in community, you can submit to the teaching of the church, and you can contend for the faith, encouraging other believers to follow Jesus and believe what's true. Uh, number three, we've got to know the scriptures so that we can recognize false teaching even within our own church, even from our own pastors. You're going to be in a place in your life where the pastor of your church says something to one degree or another that's false. Um, unless the thing that I just said was false. But then it still would be true. So um, <laughs> we've got to know the word. We've got to be in it. We've got to love it. We've got to meditate on it. We've got to study it. We've got to live it. And number four, to rely on God. We cannot practice Jude without a serious reliance on God. And to that end, I want to uh, just walk us through the, doc the doxology. The end of Jude, after all of this, points us to the greatness of God, to glorify him, to worship him, to depend on him. We need him. We need to cast our burdens on him. We need him to sustain us. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God is able to keep you. He is able to transform us into his likeness. He is able to give you victory over habitual sin, pornography, sexual temptation outside of, of your marriage, uh, anger, addiction to drugs or alcohol. 
God is able to bring freedom in your life. God is able to shape you and mold your mind and your heart and your actions into the likeness of Jesus Christ. He's able to keep our church unified and to set us apart in holiness and righteousness. He's able to protect us. And he is worthy of our lives. He is glorious. He's awesome. All glory and majesty and power and authority, they will be through Christ forever and ever. They, they belong to God through Christ forever and ever. They, they are his. Um, and I'll refrain from reading the rest of this passage because we're going to close on it in just a minute. I want to pray here. I want to ask you one question to, to consider while we pray. What is one practical step that you believe God wants you to take in order to contend for the faith? What's one practical step? Like, you know, just taking that little step, putting one foot in front of the other. What's one practical step that you feel God wants you to take in order to contend for the faith? I want to encourage you to consider that and to write it down, even as we pray, if anything comes to mind, so that we can be people not just hearing the word, but walking it out in our lives and in our community, being transformed by his word through the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's pray. God, I just thank you so much uh, for your word. God, thank you that, um, God, you care for us and you love us and uh, you do protect us, God. You protect us through your word. You protect us through the church, giving us one another. Lord, um, we have this incredible gift of being in a community where others can speak into our lives and our beliefs and our habits and practices, Lord, and where we can point one another, encouraging one another to follow Jesus. God, I pray that that would be so strong in this church. God, that we would relate to each other in mercy and love according to the truth. Lord, and I do pray that you would help us, that you would bring to mind even now, what is that step you want us to take in order to be doers of the word, in order to be faithful to this timely message that you've given us through Jude? Lord, help us to, to just retain and remember the thing that you want us to grab onto and just right away to take action, God, to do something, Lord, to show our love for you, God, and our zeal for you, God. I pray that you would spur us on to, to take that step of action, Lord, in the coming days, even tonight, Lord. And I'm gonna close the evening uh, by first inviting the prayer team up. If there's anything that you want prayer for, come up and pray with someone tonight. You can share that one thing that you feel God's calling you to with the person on the prayer team or with someone there next to you. Please feel free to do that. And I'm gonna close us with this doxology. Let us believe this. Let us be transformed by this. Let us see all of the admonitions and warnings in Jude and believe that God is able and look to him relying on him and not ourselves, not our church. Okay, so this will be the very last word of our series on Jude. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. Amen.